It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal, featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast. This is Bill Corey, the sports editor of the Providence Journal. With me is our Red Sox writer, Bill Koch. Bill, uh, we sit here on Monday early afternoon, and uh, the Red Sox have completed a sweep of the New York Yankees over the weekend. Uh, boy, what a change in that road trip, because they didn't get off on the right foot, and then they uh, go into the Bronx and uh, come away with a sweep, and uh, everyone is feeling pretty good in Red Sox Nation these days. Folks, if, if you detect a little extra giddiness from Bill Corey throughout this podcast, it's for two reasons. First, what's the, the, what's the second one? The Red Sox playing well and sweeping, and yeah. second, the Yankees going down in flames. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, that's a good point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's like two birds and one stone. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's get into it here, Bill. Uh, th- there's a, there's a lot to unpack over over the uh, over the weekend. There really uh, was. It was it was a very busy, eventful week. Lots over those of stuff. Two series. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of stuff happened. Uh, so let's let's start with the most recent, and then we'll sort of work our way backwards here. Uh, so. Um, I couldn't help but notice that uh, in the post game, Xander Bogarts made note of Brett Gardner's comments at, before the Red Sox Yankees series this weekend, where he it was kind of a tame comment, but he said something along the lines of uh, seeing Alex Cora in the dugout will make will make him or make the Yankees want to beat the Red Sox even more. Obviously, in reference to uh, Cora's uh, suspension uh, last season over the uh, sign stealing scandal, uh, you know. I'm not sure how how um, serious Gardner was. He kind of later said he, he was kind of half joking. But whatever the case, uh, the Red Sox heard it. And, uh, you know, uh, when you go into the Bronx and, and win three in a row, uh, you know, whatever it takes, I guess. And I think that was... That was uh, something that was probably in their minds, or at least in one player's mind. Yeah, Brett Gardner came out later and, and said he was half joking. It was later on in that press conference. I, I would say that a guy who has a 558 OPS and who's hitting 190 should just shut up. He's, <laughs> he's got nothing to say to, to anybody at this point. Um, you know, it, yes, mild comments. It's a tempest in a teapot. Yep. But the Red Sox at this point, uh, I think they approach this season with, with sort of the revenge tour in mind. Uh, you know, I've made the reference before mm-hmm. on the podcast. They've got the 2000s Patriots, uh, you know, chip on the shoulder. Nobody believed the, in us. The right. Mike Vrabel, Teddy Bruschi, Rodney Harrison. Nobody believes in us. We're disrespected by everybody. Uh, nobody thinks we're any good. Our players stink. Nobody wanted us. You know, all that stuff. They've, they've got it all going. They're playing all the hits. Uh, and for right now, it's working because they're sitting here 36 and 23. And last year, right. if I remember correctly, they finished 24 and 36, <laughs> nearly the reverse. Yeah. Well, you know, um, in the case of the Patriots, that was silly because lots of people had the Patriots uh, uh, picked <laughs> as the best team in the league. Rodney Harrison coming out after they beat the Eagles in the Super yeah. Bowl. Nobody believed in right. us. It's like, Rodney, what, what were they, 10, 11-point favorites you were, in that game? I think they were favored in every game that season, just about. They but went 17-2 anyway. and two or whatever it was, what, right? Whatever it takes. But, I mean, please. But in this case, it, it, there is a shred of, of truth here because I don't think, well, speaking for, for me and you, we certainly didn't think the Red Sox would be in first place or no. even, oh, they're not in first place, but, you know, they're a game off the page. 
case here, uh, 60 games into the season. Uh, so to, to some degree, yeah, I don't think there was a lot of confidence that the Red Sox were going to bounce back from that horrific uh, campaign of a season ago to be as competitive as they have been so far. I mean, we are, again, we still have 100 games or so to play. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, no one, I don't think, um, expected them to be this good uh, this soon, which brings us to Chaim Bloom and him, uh, you know, having a sort of a state of the state of the team uh, address a couple of days ago, uh, looking ahead at the trade deadline. So, Bill, what did, what did you make of uh, of Bloom's comments, and what do you think the Red Sox are going to do as they as the uh, the trade deadline approaches here? Uh, you know, generally, I, I feel like Chaim has tried to do this once a month, sort of like the 30,000-foot view of, of yep. the organization and, and where they stand. Um, you know, and I think on, on Sunday when he spoke to us, it, it's probably the first time he's been asked positive questions about a trade deadline coming up. Last year, obviously, they were sellers. They were not a good team. Mm-hmm. He did the right thing. He sold off veteran pieces, and, and he, you know, he enhanced his minor league base, his prospect base. That's the right thing to do when you're not contending. Right. This year, in my mind, he's got three different directions that he could go. If, if the Red Sox continue to play like this, the deadline isn't until July 30th. A lot could happen between then and now. Um, but he could go for it in 2021. He, he could try to make a serious move, knowing that Eduardo Rodriguez and Matt Barnes and Adam Adovino are all free agents, uh, that J.D. Martinez could opt out of his contract that Xander Bogarts is in the middle of his prime and Raphael Devers is entering his prime. Um, You know, he could look at it and say, you know, we've got a pretty good team right now. Are we a guy or two away from being a championship contender? If we are, then let's make it happen. The second course of action is you make the right deals. Now, the right deals are subjective. It's, uh, you know, in the eye of the beholder if you will. You're going to have a talk radio caller who wants to trade Ryan Weber for Max Scherzer. Uh, And in in that gentleman or or lady's mind, that might be the right thing to do. Uh, (laughs) I don't think the Nationals would be as receptive. Um, But something strategic, uh, something that improves the team, maybe at first base, at second base, another bullpen arm, without giving up too much in your prospect base. Not discussing Jaron Duran, Tristan Casas, Gilberto Jimenez. You know, those guys are off the table. We're going to make a smaller move. Right. The third thing he could do is look and say, yes, we're contending, but this is a surprise. We're probably a year ahead of where we thought we would be. Uh, if we can extend Martinez maybe one year and convince him to stick around, Bogart still isn't going to opt out until 22. Our rotation is still going to be reasonably whole. We bring back Chris Sale. Ivaldi, we have Pavetta under team control, Perez under team control, Richards under team control. We're still going to be pretty good in 22. Let's just stamp Pat. Sure. Let's not deal any prospects. Let's wait until next year to go all in. So he's got very distinct avenues to take here. I, I think preseason, the discussion we might have had, thinking that they, they were going to be improved, but nominal contenders, was... Would he sell off pieces again like Barnes, like Rodriguez, like Adovino? They'd all be very attractive to contenders. Would he maybe entertain moving Evaldi, who would have a year and a half left on his contract? Could he get a buyer for Martinez, who has a high salary but would be a significant impact bat for a contender? Um, you know, so it, 
the the way I worded this in my piece uh, for Monday's Journal, and it went online Sunday, was these are the good problems to have now if you're high in bloom. Last year, he had the headaches yeah. you don't want as an executive. This year, you've got the good decisions to make and, and sort of the good roads to travel. Yeah, you know, um, they absolutely are, the, are good problems to have. And, you know, we have, we've got about two months here before he has to really make those decisions. But we're starting to see, I think, uh, a little bit of a separation here in the standings uh, after this weekend series. You know, you've got the, the Rays who are in first place in the East. You've got the Red Sox one game out. And then you've got the Blue Jays who are six, six games out, five games behind the Sox. The Yankees who are six and a half uh, out. Uh, you know, and, and, and Orioles are you know sixteen out. But what we're start we're starting to see here is that you know the Red Sox and the Rays may be fighting for the top of this division now. Again, hundred games to play, it's too early to say uh, anything uh, definitive. But um, you know, as that uh, as that trade deadline approaches, I, I wonder if uh, if the Red Sox are still holding this kind of a margin. You know, does does Bloom say, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to we're going to do what we have to do for this year? Don't forget, we still have you know Chris Sale sort of looming there on the horizon. Who knows what that's going to look like when he comes back? If he comes back late summer, uh, so you know, do you do you shore up uh, uh, bottom of the order bat or add some defense or do some you know tweaking? That that'll help you down the stretch, and I think that you know a month month and a half from now, if you're still looking at a uh, 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 division that kind of resembles what it looks like now, I can't see how he wouldn't. Yeah. So right now they're a game behind the Rays. They're even in the loss column in the American League East. Uh, yep. They also own the top wild card spot in the American League. Uh, going into Sunday, they had a three game lead on Cleveland for the first of the two spots. Mm. Um, you know, so they would be comfortably in the postseason. They are certainly a contender. Right now, if the trade deadline was tomorrow, right. you would say that they are one of the favorites to make the postseason. Um, you know, but it's a matter of how they perceive themselves, and I think we're going to find out a lot about that if the current scenarios remain the same. If they are with the Rays contending for a division title, if they are leading in the wild card race, I think we'll get a really good sense of how they see themselves based on how they act. If they think that they're a team that can go into October and win a couple series and maybe get to a World Series, then I think that they would act a certain way. If they feel like they are still flawed and that it would take maybe three or four moves, you know, maybe a seriously impactful move, uh, you know, parting with someone like Duran, like Casas, to get them to that level, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily expect them to make it. Um, You know, and and then obviously uh, the Stan Pat, which in this market, you have to wonder, coming off two seasons where you haven't been in the playoffs, right. um, last year where you were just dreadful and, and were a seller um, you know, and played a season that was beneath you, really, uh, pandemic-shortened or not, right. um, you have to wonder if they still perceive themselves as the big market Red Sox. You know, are you still going to use your financial muscles? You're, you're about $4.5 million under the first threshold of the competitive balance tax. You're the Red Sox. You print money. It's only money. You can <laughs> right. figure out the tax and the penalties and, and whatever else 
later on. Um, you know, so do you still perceive yourselves as up there with the Yankees and the Dodgers and, and you know, the Cubs and, and uh, you know, some other teams at the top of the sport in, in terms of wanting to use your financial muscle? Will mm-hmm. ownership sign off on that? So I, I think we're going to get a really good window over the next few weeks into how they perceive themselves as an organization right now in 2021. Sure. So let's let's turn our focus to uh, this series that we actually just witnessed um, this past weekend. A few things to take away from it. First of all, uh, boy, that that blown call at uh, last night uh, at the, in the bottom of the ninth uh, was uh, well, in my mind, was uh, further uh, evidence or uh, to bolster the argument that we probably should start thinking about seriously an electronic strike zone because that that pitch wasn't even I mean it went our way as Red Sox fans right, <laughs> right Bill but right. but it, that pitch was not a strike no it was bad uh, you were in a 4-4 game in the ninth inning uh, the Red Sox had lost a 4-3 lead Matt Barnes gives up an RBI double to Glaber Torres the Yankees have the winning run on base Rufnet Odor is the pinch hitter uh, Barnes throws him a 2-1 pitch that's borderline that's called a strike and I got a text from a friend later on after the at-bat finished. And he said, did you notice that Odor shook his head at that call? You know, sort of saying, no, hmm. that was a ball that wasn't a strike. I said, I saw it. And you know the home plate umpire sure. saw it too, Gabe Morales. There's no way he could have missed it. It was right in his face. So on a 3-2 pitch, a curveball outside was Gabe Morales enforcing a little umpire's justice Yeah, there. maybe. maybe You know, it's human nature. Who knows? You know, uh, He's but, showing me up. Right. I call that pitch correctly. So here you go, Roof Ned. <laughs> Probably. Tough luck, buddy. But, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that an electronic strike zone won't allow for. Correct. <laughs> right? Correct. You know, and, and as we get um, further into, you know, techno- technological developments and, and we can see these things so clearly now, it's, it's, I think, a shame that, um, uh, you know, everybody watching the game can see whether it's a ball or strike, but the people who are playing the game or calling the game, you know, it, it goes another way. You know, I, I still think that um, you need an umpire back there. I think that there are plays at the plate, you know, foul ball, fair ball kinds of things. Uh, but when it comes to actually... Did the ball go in the little box? You know, I think that we've we've evolved enough technologically where we could figure out a way where the umpire could just go through the motions of calling the ball and the strike, but the actual determination of whether it's a ball and a strike is done by a robot or some kind of electronic eye or laser or whatever. Um, you know, it would just take that aspect out of just just take that controversy out of the game. Well, tennis has done it for years with the Hawkeye right, system and, right. and the challenge system, and what do you see less of? John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors <laughs> threatening to kill some poor baseline umpire. Although that was, sometimes that was the best part of watching tennis. It was entertaining, <laughs> for sure. Right. But in the 10th inning last night, you, you see it sort of devolve into farce. Yeah. Phil Nevin is ejected. Yep. Now, Phil Nevin is, is your classic just baseball bro. He comes out, you know, neck veins bulging, screaming it at Gabe Morales. Uh, you know, you know he's seen the replay in the clubhouse sure. and he's just looking to get a piece of somebody the problem comes in later in an at bat in that inning Bobby Dahlbeck is facing Luis Sessa he takes a 3-2 fastball just under the zone called correctly by Morales ball four it pops right. up in the box the the little you know the little baseball representation is below the box yep 
But at that point, the Yankees dugout loses it. Carlos Mendoza gets ejected. He's the bench coach for Aaron Boone. You've lost all credibility. That relationship between players and umpire right. has been destroyed in, in that moment. Um, you know, And so no matter what happens the rest of the game, there's not going to be that trust there, that belief there that, that the correct calls are being made. You go to the electronic system, all you need to do is watch a replay. Yeah. You could put it up on the video board in center field. All the fans could see it. It would be interactive. I know they do that at at, uh, at Newport when they play the tennis tournament there at the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do that on any tour event. And, and it, it gets to be kind of fun. Sure. After a while, you're sort of looking up there like, ooh, maybe that was on the line. Did it catch the line? Yes, it did. Right. You know, what right. a great shot. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, it turns it a little toxic and into a little bit of farce. And it takes away from what was a very compelling game in its own right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, a good umpire is, is one that uh, we don't notice as fans and, or as viewers, right? It's, it's a consistent strike zone. Uh, the calls are made, um, you know, without much fanfare. Uh, and then, uh, you know, what, what we saw last night, uh, you know, was just the uh, just the opposite of that. And so I, I see that now and I just say there's no there's no need for it. You know, we've reached no. a point where we don't really need it. You know, just go electronic, let the umpire stand back there and make the actual you know, signal the signal whether it's a ball or strike, but let let the uh, let the technology determine whether it's a, actually a ball or strike. But I'm sure there will be more, Bill. But you know that one that one stood out because it was so egregious to watch. And know? it's at a huge spot in the game, yeah. in a huge rivalry game on national TV. Right. It's yeah, exactly. It's it's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. So another uh, another takeaway from this past weekend was uh, Raphael Devers knows how to hit fastballs again. Apparently, <laughs> yes. Boy, that bomb he hit uh, Friday night. Yeah, Friday, Friday night. night was yeah. uh, was something uh, in the uh, second deck of their uh, Yankee Stadium. Yeah, you know he started to figure it out in Houston. Uh, he had a couple infield singles off fastballs. Um, the Astros just attacked him uh, and and weren't subtle about it either. They threw him sixty two pitches over four games. Sixty one of them were fastballs. Right. Um, you know, and endeavors. Uh, we had uh, hitting coach Tim Hires on Zoom earlier this week, and, and he said it, and I think anyone who's watched the games can see it. Uh, Devers getting a little long with his swing. Um, you know, he's, he's getting a little long. He's trying to hit ball 600 feet. Um, all he really needs to do is shorten up, be more direct to the ball, and, and let his hands work. And, and they are working on that right now mechanically. They're trying to get him to the point where he shortens up, um, you know, where his hands go directly to the ball quickly short violently like he has right. throughout his whole career um you could see it in houston on thursday he absolutely smashed a double off the center field fence against jake Odorizzi. uh and then friday he's in an 0-2 count he gets a fastball up and, and on the inner third and all of a sudden it's this quick violent i'm gonna pull my hands in swing and he crushes it into the second deck right. and that's that's just the kind of hitter he is i i've said this before on the pod I think Devers is a savant with the bat in his hands. I think he's a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the way he's able to hit the ball at 24 years old. Um, the fact that you he can't really be pitched to in terms of righties, lefties, velocity, off-speed stuff. He hits everything yep. and every one, um, and that includes pitches that are out of the zone. Uh, the bat-to-ball skills are, are just tremendous. Um, you know, so you just knew it was going to be a matter a matter of time. They they found a weakness, they exploited it. It's up to him to adjust to it. He's in the process of doing that right now. And I think those things sort of pop up in certain situations. You, you saw it, um, you know, er, earlier 
in the series, I think on, uh, I think it was on Saturday night, uh, Saturday night, Sunday night, he started a rally um, on a fastball that was in. He he hit a single to right center field. I, actually, I think that was Sunday it, night. It was, yeah. Um, you know, to lead off the eighth inning. And, and so you're looking at that and you're thinking, okay, they're just going to Boston, Boston, Boston with, like, you're not going to get away with that right. all the time. That was in the seventh inning. You're not going to get away with that all the time. He's just too talented. You're not going to be able to just throw him the same pitch over and over and over again and think that you're going to get him out. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, a couple of uh, a couple of the notes uh, last night um, on the pitching end of things. Uh, boy, uh, Garrett Richards kind of got himself into a jam and got himself out of a jam uh, and uh, a couple of times. And... Uh, uh, kept the Red Sox in the game, but boy, that that looked like you know because it was early. It was the first inning when he first got in trouble. To me, it looked like okay, well here here we go. The Yankees are not going to just roll over and get swept here. They're going to put up six runs on on the board, and and uh, but he was able to kind of wriggle out of it and keep the keep the team uh, in the game. And I thought, well, you know, that's a really good sign. You know, doing it against the Yankees in in the Bronx, you know. Uh, was uh, was a good sign to, to, to see for a first-year Red Sox pitcher. Yeah, gave up three runs. It could have been a lot more. Um, eight hits in the game. Uh, I think seven of them were singles, oddly enough. But, uh, yeah, he he had all kinds of issues early. They load the bases in the first inning. Uh, they load the bases later on in the game. You're, you're thinking, okay, you know, when is when is the elastic <laughs> right, you're not snap gonna, here? Right, you're not going to get out of this again. You, you just You can't get away with this forever and ever and ever. It just doesn't work that way. Um, you know, but he was able to to grind his way through five innings, and, and I think Red Sox pitching, starting pitching in particular, has done a great job of giving them quality innings this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at their numbers going into Saturday's game, um, you know you've got four starters who have an ERA three seven five or better, uh, three seven eight or better, actually. Um, one of those, Martin Perez, he's at three point oh nine. Yeah, he's been terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of their starters ERA, I think they were 12th going into the weekend. Last year, they were in the bottom five. Sure. Their pitching staff was horrendous. They, they were just so non-competitive on so many right. nights. Well, they, I mean, you had guys who really didn't belong in the majors last year. Absolutely. Too, so. you're, you're, you're basically holding live tryouts. But you didn't give the lineup a chance. You, you never, right. never felt like the team had a chance at any point. Um, you know, just just no reason for optimism because the guy on the mound, the game's over in the first or second inning. There, there's no point in playing the other seven. No. Um, but Richards has been a really good signing by Boston. Obviously, Pavetta. You would say that the trade for Pavetta and Seabold dealing away Brandon Workman and Heath Hembry, uh, arguably the best move High and Bloom has made to date as a sure. baseball officer. And, and Workman's really back good. now, <laughs> and, and he got Workman back on top yeah. of it. Um, you know, but but the moves that they've made to address the rotation, and the way that those guys have performed individually so far, I, I think that's been the best part of the Red Sox through fifty nine games. Through fifty nine games, they are thirteen games over five hundred. Uh, you you may note that uh, they've had twenty one come from behind wins this season. Leads which, the majors, which is really a, a high number, and it certainly speaks uh, very well of your offense. Um, 
Uh, another pitcher that uh, probably uh, deserves mention here is Sawamura from Friday night. Was it Friday night? Friday night. Uh, who came in and just mowed down the Yankees in Yankee Stadium, which was, again, heartening to see. You know, um, you wonder if uh, when some of these uh, foreign uh, players come to the major leagues, they probably have some awareness of a lot of the teams and stadiums, but you know that they know about Yankee Stadium and the Yankees, right? I mean, they're the worldwide brand, and that's probably uh, well known in uh, in Japan and South America and everywhere else. Uh, so you always kind of wonder how that would go when you're walking into Yankee Stadium to pitch against the Yankees uh, and against the, well, not quite full house because they don't have full capacity yet, but, uh, but Sawamura uh, acquitted himself very well. Yeah, athletes tend to go two ways under pressure. They, they either shine or they crumble. Mm-hmm. Um, Sawamura in that spot, coming in in the seventh inning, giving them two innings and striking out five, he was right. dominant. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he was fantastic. Uh, they don't win the game without him. Um, yeah, he mentioned when he spoke to us over the weekend that uh, you know Yankee Stadium for him is a special place because he had watched so many Japanese players playing there, whether it was Matsui mm-hmm. or Tanaka. Uh, or Ichiro, yep. um, you know, and just the fact that it is Yankee Stadium, as you said, the Yankees are a worldwide brand. That is a, a play; it's one of the temples of baseball. Even though it is the new Yankee Stadium, I know it's not the old one. I, I understand that. Right? Um, you know, Mystique and Aura might have stayed across the street. Um, <laughs> you know, but you're, you're you're looking at that ballpark, that franchise, uh, that stage in that city. It's it's just so iconic. Yep. Um, and to see him do what he did. Uh, you know, he's unavailable for the rest of the weekend, but you're starting to see Saumura figure out how to throw fastballs up in the zone and the split finger down and, and create that big sort of vertical separation between his two pitches. Uh, it's a lot for hitters to think about, um, and it puts him squarely in the discussion for a guy who you can trust going into the seventh or eighth inning as opposed to, say, coming out in the fifth if a starter goes short or coming out in the sixth where it's a little lower leverage. It's nice to think that he could develop into another option to be with Adam Adovino and Darwins and Hernandez and Josh Taylor ahead of Matt Barnes. Sure. Uh, so, uh, speaking of pitchers, we should probably uh, uh, tip the cap here to um, Rhode Island's own um, Michael King, who uh, is in the starting rotation right now for the New York Yankees uh, because of... Um, some injuries. Um, and, you know, uh, Bill, we, we talked about this a uh, day or two after the game, and, and it struck me that, that, you know, he's a lot, he, he looks like a major league player these days, you know. I mean, he was a, uh, you know, a standout at Bishop Hendrickin. I think he graduated in 12 or 13 or something like that. But anyway. Uh, God, I'm going to age myself. <laughs> I try to guess. I, I think it's 13. I yeah. think you're right. Uh, but uh, he has, uh, he looks, uh, he has that frame, you know, that 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 uh, that power pitcher kind of frame. Uh, and uh, as you noted, you know, uh, the Yankees' rotation is pretty beat up, so he's going to get a little chance here, a little while, I think, to kind of show himself as uh, as a major league pitcher. And good for him. Yeah. First thing, uh, it, it's crazy to think that you know I saw these guys pitch in high school, whether it's Mike King or Thomas Pannone. Yeah. Uh, you know, now I've seen them pitch in major league games. And, and you know, in, in Pannone's case, I've talked to him in a major league clubhouse. 
two of them. Right. It's just it, it's wild to think when when you see guys go on that journey. I, I know it's not as unconventional if if maybe you cover high school sports in California or Texas or, or Florida. Sure. But yeah. Certainly it, here. No, it doesn't happen very often. Doesn't happen. No. Um, I I think the point you let off with Bill is is the one that I was struck by. Um, King looks the part. Mm. He looks the part. Um, you know, six three, powerful kid. He's twenty six now. Uh, he's touching 96, 97 miles an hour with his four-seam fastball. I didn't know he had that in the right. tank. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, you know, that's more velocity than, than what I've seen from him yep. before. Um, he threw 66 pitches, 49 for strikes, 10 swing and misses. Uh, he's added a cut fastball this year. Uh, as Alex Spear noted, the, the great writer for the Boston Globe, hitters are four for 27 against the cut fastball going into Friday night. So it's an effective extra secondary pitch for him. Uh, He's obviously put in some work uh, into his craft. Um, And I think, you know, the the biggest thing for guys at that level, and and you see it all the time, is, you know, rookies will come up second-year guys, third-year guys. And it just looks like it's a little too much. They're afraid to challenge the strike zone. They nibble a little bit. Um, You know, they get into jams and can't get out of them. Um, it's just that little extra finish that a lot of guys don't have. Um, now, granted, you, you could look at his outing on Friday and you could say, well, just take away the three-run homer by Devers and, and he would have been great. That, you don't get to do that, <laughs> of course. Right, right. Um, but what I would say is that from that point, if you're somebody who doesn't fully believe that you belong there in your own abilities, that's a two-and-a-third inning outing. He's out in the third or in the fourth, and he blows up, and the Yankees have to go through the whole bullpen before a weekend series with the Red Sox, and it's three guys get DFA'd and three guys get recalled from Scranton, and you basically blow up your roster. He got all the way into the sixth, five and a third, only one more run, which was an inherited run from the bullpen. They lose 5-2, but he gave them a chance to win Saturday and Sunday night by not blowing up early, And and I think that's important for a young pitcher, that's something that Richards did, a much more veteran guy, on Sunday for the Red Sox. Yeah. If he's out of that game in the third, Boston doesn't have another day off until next Monday. Right. Who knows what happens to their pitching staff? All of a sudden, they're, they're bringing up Ryan Weber and they're bringing up Kyle Hart, and you know they just need like length guys in the bullpen, and Matt Andrees is out there for four innings in a given game. Who knows? Right. Um, and King is, is going to get an extended opportunity here now. Corey Kluber is transferred to the 60-day I.L., that just happened today, right? Just happened uh, over the weekend, I think, oh, okay. maybe it was Sunday. Okay. Um, you know, but you're looking at an extended stretch where he has a chance to get eight or nine or ten starts on video, mm-hmm. whether it's for the Yankees or for somebody else. Yeah. Um, you know, has a chance to settle into the rotation, get into his routine, his throwing program, and show whether or not he can be a starting pitcher in the big league level or just a long guy out of the bullpen it's a huge difference if he's able to establish himself as a viable starter as somebody the Yankees see or somebody else see as part of their rotation that's a huge step in his career yeah no absolutely and and you make a very good point I mean uh he gets touched by that uh, by that home run early, and he could have gone one of two ways. He could have just crumbled and then been out of that game in the second inning, or, or do what he did and kind of right himself and and give you another three or four innings and keep the team in the in it. 
which which is the mark of a major leaguer. I mean, you're eventually going to give up a bomb or some hits. It's going to happen. You're, you're you're facing the best hitters in the world. That's right. It's it's uh you know do, do you cave in and uh, and just uh you, you know collapse or do you figure it out and and gut gut your way through and that's what he did and it was you know as a Red Sox fan obviously you want him to get knocked out but as somebody who's rooting for a Rhode Islander it was good to see that for sure yeah I thought he was good I, I mean you know his his stuff is good enough to play there uh, I mean he's running his fastball into the mid 90s uh, he got drafted based on that sinker you know that movement that he has that that two seam movement yeah um, you know throwing some change ups some curveballs some sliders he, he's got enough projectability he's got enough pitchability to be there it's just a matter of you know whether or not he can settle into a routine um, go out there every five days and give his team a chance to win and and if he can do that he's going to be somebody who the Yankees or or somebody else will want for the long term well Bill as as uh, as good as it was for Red Sox Nation and Red Sox fans to uh, to watch them sweep the Yankees in the Bronx over the weekend. The road trip didn't exactly get off on the right foot uh, when they went down to Houston uh, and they dropped their first uh, three games to the Astros on the road there. And the first one, I want to say, they got beat. They got annihilated. It yeah. was 11-2. Right. And, and you're thinking, okay. <laughs> Maybe they're not as good as we think, we think they are. Nice start to the trip, guys. Right, anyway. right. Well, there was a lot going on there. It was you know Cora going back to Houston and and, and all that. But yeah, they uh, they they get they get uh, routed in that first game, uh, and they they drop the next two, and they finally come back and beat the Astros on Thursday, five to one. Uh, so, Bill, what were your what were your take uh, uh, your takeaways from the Houston series? Um, as as a whole here. Well, so you're in this long stretch where you're playing playoff teams, and, and now you're getting out on the road after you play Atlanta and Miami at home. Yeah. And you, know, you think Houston is a team that's going to be there in the AL West and, and probably make one last push to October before they have some key guys <clears throat> come up in free agency, yeah. whether that's Correa or Greinke um, you know, Verlander, who's obviously hurt, but will be on the market this offseason. Right. Um, you know, so you're looking at Houston, and they're very tough at home, and, and it's a difficult environment. For people who haven't been to Minute Maid Park, it's, they close the roof, and it's loud, and the team's been winning in recent years, so the fan base is pretty engaged. And, you know, they weren't really razzing Cora too hard. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I was expecting something more, you know. Uh, but it didn't. There wasn't this one thing you could point to and say, "Oh, look, this is what they did and said to him." Because his the, his role in the scandal was with them in twenty seventeen. Yeah, they benefited. He right? won a ring with them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's no reason for Astros fans to dislike him. You would say that there is recent playoff history between the two sides in twenty seventeen in the division series. 2018 in the championship series the Astros are the defending champions the World Series champions the Red Sox knocked them out winning right. all three games at home right so Astros fans have no love for for Boston nor should they yeah. um, you know I, I just I would say at the start of the series Houston's pitching just dominated the Red Sox had four runs on 17 hits through three games uh, Jose Urquidy Luis Garcia and Framber Valdez just shoved it on Boston. And, and you're talking about three good young arms there. Uh, Urquidy was a guy who they, they've sort of been gradually bringing through over the last couple of years. And, and the Astros have a good track record recently 
of bringing up some young guys who can throw. Christian Javier is another one who's been shifted to the bullpen. Um, you know, but another good young arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garcia was a guy who hadn't pitched above a ball until last year. He made it into the 60-man player pool. Ultimately, they promoted him. He's got sort of an unconventional windup. It's a little bit of back and forth. Mm. And if you're a hitter, I, I think maybe seeing him for the first time as the Red Sox were, he's just a little weird. Yeah, you, yeah, know, you don't hard see, to, Yeah, you don't see that very much. To get that, it, right. it's like a throwback, like a Paul Bird yeah. type. You know, where there's a lot of motion yeah. there, and then the ball comes out. And I, I can imagine as a hitter, it takes a lot of focus. You're probably standing there thinking, "All right, just throw the <laughs> right, thing already. Right. Let's let's get on with it." Yeah. Uh, and then Framber Valdez is is a guy who um, you know, he's going into like his his fourth or fifth season, uh, getting some major league time. He's tough lefty. Yeah, uh, he's got great movement on all of his pitches. The the fastball, um, you know, has nice run on it. Uh, Curveball is very sharp. Uh, has a good slider. Um, he's a guy actually who I I have on a couple fantasy teams, um, and who I targeted. I I know he was hurt to start the season. Um, but he's got strikeout potential. He's he's the type of guy who, you know, if he's your number two or number three starter, you have a good staff. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm sure they thought that Granke and Jake Odorizzi and, and Verlander before he got hurt, if Framber Valdez is your third or fourth starter, you've got a deep staff. Mm. Um, you know, so those three guys sort of went out and, and they sort of hypnotized the Red Sox over, over three nights. Boston pitched well. Just couldn't get anything going offensively, and then the fourth game against Odorizzi, they broke out. Uh, yeah, which, which was, was good nice. to see. It was nice yeah. to see. Yeah. You salvage one. You go to New York on a decent note, right? And then you saw the way they carried it forward. It, it was important to get the Thursday getaway day at the very least. And now Houston comes into Boston this week, so you know you have at least a sliver of confidence against them. You're not thinking, man, these guys beat our brains in for four games. Like This is going to be impossible. Well, you did what you're supposed to do on the road, and that is go at least 500, and they did that. They did. They went four and three, and no one would have uh, predicted, well, at least not me, would have predicted the way they went four and three. That's right. <laughs> that's right. But ultimately, they went four and three, uh, so that's really all that matters. Uh, so it was certainly a successful road trip. And you're right now, they're going get to, to get to see the Astros again this week. They have this uh, makeup game today with the Marlins at five, I believe, and then... And then uh, they've got uh, Houston in here for three, and then I believe the Blue Jays come to town as well. For, yes, to to round out the week. Uh, so, Bill, before um, we uh, before we wrap up this uh, this episode of the Twin Bills, I wanted to touch on something that is uh, becoming all the talk in Major League Baseball, and that is the scandal involving foreign substances yeah. and pitchers and reduced spin rates and all this good stuff. Um, so how big of a problem is this, do you think? And, uh, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, what are they going to do to try and combat it? Yeah. Uh, pitchers using foreign substances on the baseball, I, I think, which is not a new thing, by no, the way. <laughs> not, not, not a new thing at all. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think it's, if, if we go through the history of baseball and, and we look back at certain scandals that baseball has had, whether it's gambling steroid use, PED use, um, you know, whatever they may be that that affects play on the field. Right. I would sort of say that Major League Baseball stance and and the the players and and coaching staff stances on it are, it's not a problem until it is. 
<laughs> you know? Well, the problem is that the uh, the league is hitting at like 230 or something like that, right? The, the lowest batting average since 1968. And so when the game becomes so obviously skewed yeah. for a certain reason, right? it wasn't a problem before, but now it is. Now it's a problem. You know, there's, right. there's gambling in the game. I'm sure in the early 1900s, it didn't become obvious until the Black Sox fixed the World Series. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's, wow, we have to crack down. We need gambling out of the game. Mm. PEDs, steroids being what they are. Guys are using them in the 90s. We celebrate Sosa and McGuire. Yeah. All of a sudden, Barry Bonds hits 73 home runs in his late 30s, and we say, wait a minute. Yeah, something's going on. What's going on here? <laughs> of course, it's been going on for 10 years or 12 years. It's been going on for a while, right, but right. now all of a sudden, yeah. you know, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not accusing, I'm yeah. not accusing, but Brett Boone all of a sudden is hitting 45 home runs as a second baseman. Sure. I mean, there's plenty of examples you know, five, of, of, of players who, who uh, you know, hit 10 home runs most of their career in season, then we're hitting 30 and more. You know, Sammy Sosa emerges as a 600-home as run guy. How sure. did he do that? Right. Um, you know, even if those guys were clean, even if Boone and Sosa were clean, neither one of those guys ever tested positive. But all of a sudden, you're looking and saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, something's going on here that shouldn't be going on. Right. right. And I think it, it, it baseball's a very insular culture. You're not going to have managers speaking out about certain things because they know either overtly or, or sort of behind the scenes. They know that their own players are doing it too. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you weren't going to have Terry Francona coming out in 2005 and say, man, you know, a lot of these guys are on PEDs because Manny Ramirez tested positive. Yep. And David Ortiz was named in the Mitchell Report. And you know that there were other guys in that Red Sox clubhouse who were using them. Um, you know, so they are generally, baseball is generally very loath to rein itself in. Um, you look at the the electronic sign stealing scandal. It took Mike Fires breaking the silence to the Athletic for right. Major League Baseball to investigate. And, that. and he all was ostracized the, for it. And he yeah. was ostracized yeah. for it. And all yeah. of a sudden, it's oh well, there's a problem. Yeah. Now you look at the offensive numbers, and you've got some of the position players speaking up and saying, "Hey, you got to take a look at what these guys are doing to the ball." Like, right. you know, I I don't have a chance. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned spin rates. What happens is we'll we'll just be very basic about this. Pitchers have always used rosin bags to get a little better grip. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's legal. It's not to the point where you're using pine tar. Right. Or all of a sudden you combine rosin with sunscreen and it's a little extra sticky. Um, you know, and you get to the point where your grip is so good, your four-seam fastball all of a sudden is spinning more than it ever has. It holds its plane for a little longer, it sort of gives that rising visual effect. So, so it's an increased spin rate. It's not a decreased spin rate. On that I'm sorry. Page. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, and so you're looking at it, and you're thinking it's an optical illusion, and you can't square it up. Yeah. Obviously, what an increased grip would do for breaking balls, splitters, whatever it may be, you put more spin rate on a slider or on a curveball, it's going to break later, sharper. Uh, look at someone like Garrett Richards when he throws his curveball. I don't know if he's out there using anything. Right, right. But he's got a spin rate of over 3,000 RPM. You know, that could start at your head, and all of a sudden it's on the outer half of the plate, and you're like, how did that happen? Right. Because it's spinning so much, it can make that break, right? Yes. And it can be late, and it can be 78 miles an hour, and you have absolutely no chance of hitting it. And, And so you've got some hitters, some coaching staff, some managers going to Major League Baseball saying, hey, our guys have no chance. You know, this this is a little out of hand. You couple that with the boon in technology in the game. 
the fact that these guys are going to you know what Cora described as these offseason pitching labs, yep. whether it's a driveline baseball or, or that organizations set up on their own. You know, you're using a Rapsodo and you're using TrackMan, which is generally what golfers use to determine their launch angles on their irons mm-hmm. and on their drivers. And you're looking and saying, okay, if I shape my curveball this way, if I throw it from this angle, it spins X amount. Right. What if I throw it from this angle? What if I drop my arm angle two degrees or three degrees? How much more is it going to spin? How much more is it going to break? How much harder is it going to be right, right. to hit? You, pitching has sort of turned into like mad science at this point. You mix in an obvious advantage like a better grip, and all of a sudden you've married that mad science with traditional cheating yeah <laughs> for lack of a better term yeah, right um and you end up with the league hitting 230 and yeah. and striking out at an astronomical rate um you know and and really really struggling to generate offense of any kind i mean you've got teams hitting below the mendoza line yeah whole teams the right. mariners are, are below 200 as a team um but you know, the, the offensive the offensive approach plays into that i was going to say right. you, you you add all that with the offensive approach and the emphasis on power and doing damage right. and that strikeouts are okay yep. um you know and that they're accepted at this point and you know previously if a guy struck out a hundred times he'd be embarrassed never mind 200 times right um you know you you take the general risk reward with hitting you couple that with what's going on with pitching technologically and traditional cheating and you've arrived at a point in 2021 where strikeouts have never been higher yeah hitters have never been more helpless pitchers have never had nastier stuff never thrown harder um and you see this sort of offensive blackout in the game so uh, what we're hearing is that um, you know the umpires are going to do much uh, uh, much more regular checking of the baseball, uh, you know, uh, asking the pitcher to see the ball, and making sure there's nothing, no substance on it. And the only thing that I could think of, Bill, when I was reading this, is oh boy, so so now these. <laughs> All these measures that are supposed to speed the game up are going to come to a screeching halt because we're going to be checking the baseball 10 or 12 times a game. Right. You know, uh, and what if they find something? I mean, you know, chances are they're going to find something on the baseball that they've they've always found. I mean, the pitchers have always kind of tried to nick the ball or, or put a little bit of extra uh, sticky substance on their hands for, for the better grip. So then what? The, the pitcher gets thrown out or get a warning or what's... You know, it seems so subjective. See, this is not something that the uh, that the electronic strike zone can solve. You know, this, right. this, this, this right. goes to the right. this goes to the judgment of the umpires, and and who knows what can happen. Well, this is why you still need the umpire behind the plate, <laughs> right? right? You know, right. He doesn't need to call the ball and strikes anymore. But, That's but right. the umpire you got to examine the baseball, yeah, right, with a magnifying glass. They they instructed the umpires to start the year uh, that if they saw any balls that that acted weird or looked strange, that they should throw them immediately out of the game. And, yeah. and they have done that. Uh, in the minor leagues, of course, throw the balls immediately. Throw the balls out of the, out of the game. game, right? Not the pitchers, uh, right? right. Uh, in the minor leagues, of course, which is where MLB sort of uses uh, they sort they sort of use it as like a testing yeah. ground. Yeah, it's a breeding ground. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've had some pitchers suspended for using foreign substances on the ball. Yeah. Um, you know, previously when when Major League Baseball was trying to get a PED policy in place, they put in a draconian one in the minor leagues, and and they were suspending guys left and right yep. for positive tests. Um, you know, so you're sort of seeing the minor leagues used as that, but I think this has escalated so quickly 
at the major league level, and and I think the you know the sort of vocal opposition to this uh, has escalated so quickly and continues to escalate um, that MLB has felt like it needs to take a little more definitive action, and and so there's going to be increased vigilance by umpires. Um, you might open a little bit more latitude for opposing managers to ask for a ball to be checked or, yeah. or an opposing pitcher's glove to be checked or his hat to be checked. Hmm. Um, you know, you, you could have sort of those good faith gentlemen's unwritten rules that, that we've talked about before, you know, that sort of thing. Hey, check the pitcher's glove. Well, you want to do that and you don't find anything, your best hitter is going to get drilled the next time hmm. he comes right. up. Right. A lot of that's out of the game now. You're, you're not necessarily seeing <clears throat> that sort of like, you know, Western cowboy justice on the field anymore. Um, you know, so maybe the game has gotten to a point, and, and I say this, and I understand that baseball hasn't done this in 120 years, but maybe baseball can get to the point where it can help itself and maybe police <laughs> itself a little bit. <laughs> we know that that's not true. We we know that guys will do anything they, to get an edge. They always say they're going to when they're pressed up, up against the wall or called before Congress or whatever, right? Right. But it typically doesn't usually happen uh, uh, of of their free will. No, it it, it just it, it falls short in a way. They they get to sort of an acceptable level of skullduggery or cheating or uh, you know, sort of manipulating the game, and and they say, all right, that's o- that's okay. Um, you know, and they've certainly guys have been rubbing stuff on the ball for a long time, and you know they've been using pine tar, and and they've you know the the, the big joke uh, for the two thousands Red Sox was Clay Buckholtz was using sunscreen in a start at Tampa Bull, Bullfrog, right? Bullfrog <laughs> at Tampa. Yeah. Um, you know, he spotted spraying on sunscreen in a dome stadium. <laughs> right. It was you know, Clay, why are you doing that? Yeah. Uh well <laughs> lights are really uh, bright. Yeah, you know, <laughs> dog ate my homework yeah. type of answer. Yeah. Um, you know, I I have sensitive skin. You know, it feels good. <laughs> it's like Clay, right. come on, man, really? Right. Um, you know, so I'm interested to see, you know, not only how umpires deal with this, but I'm interested to see how active teams are in this. I'm, I'm interested to see what managers do, yeah. um, you know, what batters might do. If they see a pitch act weird, do they turn to the umpire and say, hey, take a look at that ball. Yeah. There's something going on here. Generally, that's been taboo in the game. You, you, there have been reprisals for that over the course of time. Right. Yeah. Um, those reprisals seem lessened. Now, as we sit here in 2021, you're not just going to line up and drill somebody. That that doesn't happen as much as it might have in the 60s and the 70s when it was sort of like we're going to do this on our own. And, and so I'm I'm really intrigued to see if this escalates <clears throat> over the next few weeks the behavior on the benches and on the field. Yeah, it's going to be inter- interesting to see how they deal with it because you're right. I mean, it could be players asking the ump take a look at the ball. I mean. You could do that every inning, you know. You could do that every at bat, right? Every plate appearance, if you really wanted to. Uh, so it, yeah, it just doesn't seem to be uh, very well defined. But you know, we'll say, you know, it to me, it it right now, it's there's a lot of talk of it, and you're right that the umpires have been throwing out a lot of the balls, but it really hasn't come to a head anywhere. Although we have seen examples where you know some umpires are talking to some pitchers and stuff, but. Um, 
I mean, I think the league looks at it and says we we can't, we can't have an overall batting average of two thirty six. No, that's not going to bring eyeballs to the uh, to the TV screens. And I think that's that's really the, the big driving factor here. You know, and strangely enough, if if you go back not too far, <laughs> you think about some comments from Dustin Pedroia. I, I think it was around the time the the Buckholtz thing was going on. Somebody asked Pedroia what he thought about pitchers using you know some sort of adhesive to get a better grip. Yeah. And Pedroia essentially said, you know, as long as it's not too ridiculous, I'm okay with it. I want the guy to know where the ball's going. Yeah. I don't want him to <coughs> smoke me in the head with 95, you know, right. especially not on some cold night in April in Boston sure. where it's dry and the ball feels like, you know, a billiard ball in your hand. You have no grip on it. Right. And all of a sudden you lose it. You hit a guy in the head and you end his career. Right. You know, Pedroia's point of contention and, and it was a really interesting one and one that I hadn't thought of because I've never stood in a major league batter's box was I'd much rather have the guy be thrown to the little box with a grip and maybe throw a little nastier pitch every once in a while and, and get me than having the box get a little bigger and that box including my body right my hands my chin whatever else and all of a sudden he loses a fastball and I'm out for the year or worse. Yeah. Um, you know, so that was, I think that's been part of this. I don't think Pedroia was alone in that way. I, I wouldn't think so. I think that pitchers, there is that uneasy relationship between pitchers and hitters. Hitters having a sort of trust in the pitchers knowing where the ball is going. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, so that they're able to stand in there when Jacob deGrom's throwing 101 miles an hour right. and not really be afraid that he's going to hit you in the face. Well, you know, I think you and I are probably uh, dinosaurs when it comes to watching baseball because I think I think we we talked about in the past. There's there's a certain uh, allure for watching a two to one game. You know, oh, I like it, right? I mean, uh, pitchers really dominating and seeing, uh, you know, which offense can can nick them enough to win. You know, it's not like I want to watch one to nothing, two to one games all the time. I mean, yeah, I'd love you know every now and then it's great to watch a nine to seven game and you know three guys go, go yard and stuff. But it's it's uh, you know to me it's much more interesting to watch a pitcher have a dominant game and see if that offense can can solve him what what i don't like <clears throat> is being desensitized to run scored yeah I, I don't i don't like sitting there in the second inning and it's a five nothing game and i think to myself well it's only five runs <laughs> right. who really cares right you know and i'm i'm not appreciating the fact that a team just had a five run rally in the second inning right i'm just looking and thinking well seven innings left that's plenty of time. These guys average eight runs a game. Right. You know they're going to come back, right. and you're almost not paying attention to the fact that JD Martinez just hit one on the Lansdowne Street, and, and Devers followed up and, and hit one into the bleachers. It's mm. like, eh, okay, right, fine. <laughs> you know that's cool, and that sort of brings out it brings out the nuances in the game. You know whether it's um, you know the pitching decisions you have to make in a, in a two to one game, and you know whether or not you continue with the starter into the seventh inning, and he sees the order for a fourth time through, or whatever it may be. I, I think you know you see a lot more strategy in the game instead of oh, just go up there and hit it six hundred feet. Like that's you <laughs> right. Know, right. I won't say anyone can do that because it's not true. But as a manager, as a roster executive, whatever it may be, you've got to think a lot more. Sure. You've got to sort of navigate your way through a game. Instead of just turning your lineup loose and saying, "All right, guys, you know, go ahead, go out there and slug, and we'll figure out the rest." Sure, sure. Well, we'll see what happens here. Um, you know, uh, 
<clears throat> I, I, I tend to think that there's going to be a lot of talk, and I'm not sure that there's going to be a lot of action on the other end to back up the talk. It tends to, you know, that's sort of what Major League Baseball is uh, known for. But um, we'll see what happens as as the uh, as these talks uh, uh, with clubs and uh, the uh, umps progress. Um, and, but you know, Bill, with the Red Sox playing the Astros here and uh, and uh, uh, the Blue Jays coming up, particularly the Astros, I- I'm fine with them scoring nine or ten runs a game, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> in in the, in that series, right? Yeah. Or, so. or or the seven they scored on Saturday against New York. I'm, I'm sure that's you're okay too. With those, right. Right. That's okay. Apparently, the Yankees weren't putting enough stuff on the ball or whatever. Right. Oh my so. goodness. They, they they certainly weren't putting enough stuff in their lineup. I, I can say that. No, much. but they they are they are really they are they're beat up and uh, uh, and you made the point too that their their outfield uh, left a lot to be desired defensively but um, they're just not playing well in a lot of aspects right now of the game they're, they're, they're fundamentally not not they're just they're not being the Yankees you know no injuries being what they are they're they're having a hard time with that they've got some key guys out obviously Aaron Hicks and, and Luke Voigt are right. out those are two big regulars for them Hicks for the year right Hicks for the year with left wrist surgery and and Hicks being out he's been revealed to sort of be like the linchpin in this outfield they don't have another center fielder right yeah you can't have Gardner out there all the time they're playing Brett Gardner out there Saturday their outfield alignment was Miguel Andujar in left Aaron Judge in center Clint Frazier in right yeah that's tough that makes them below average at all three positions Uh, Judge is a very good right fielder throws the ball well right you can't put him in center field he's not going to be able to cover the ground he's going to end up getting hurt He'll join Giancarlo Stanton on the IL right. at some point. You can't have it. Uh, you saw Sunday night, Christian Arroyo hits a pop-up to short right. Frazier doesn't take charge. LeMahieu drops it. It scored a double, which was ridiculous. Right. LeMahieu touched the ball, unfortunately for him. It should be an E4, two-base yeah. error. Um, but Frazier has to take charge on that ball. That's a guy who's not confident who's still not used to being out there. He doesn't right. really have a natural position, right. He, Clint right. Frazier. He, right. He's a player without a real position. He's right. a hitter who <clears> came <throat> up as an infielder, who they've tried to turn into an outfielder, and he's not really one of those either. Mm-hmm. He's got to take charge in that spot. That cost the Yankees a run when Xander Bogart hits a sacrifice fly later in the inning. So you look at them defensively. They're, they're terrible. Offensively, they look like a men's softball team. It's just station <laughs> to station, home yeah. runs. They're last in the league in stolen bases. You know, they never go first to third. Um, you know, they're no threat at all in terms of speed. Right. Um, and the Red Sox, so far, to this point, have done a great job of keeping teams in the ballpark, um, you know, this season. Uh, you know, so you take that out of the Yankees' hands on a warm weekend in the Bronx, that's generally a time where they get well. You know, and they start smashing balls all over sure. the place, and you're thinking, oh, man, yeah. you know, we're, we're right. in for it now. Yeah. Um, you know, but yeah, they got they got big problems in terms of injuries and, and in terms of roster construction. Uh, only two games over five hundred, and and you know that market being what it is, they're going to open up Yankee Stadium to full capacity at some point. A lot of those folks are not going to be very pleased with the product they see on the field. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens when the Yankees come to town uh, at the end of this month. I believe they come to uh, Fenway, so we'll see if the uh, if the uh, Yankees look a little bit different than they than they did this past weekend. But anyway, Bill, uh, time flies when you're talking about the Yankees losing. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. see, folks, I so, told you you'd be happy about this. Right. 
well, I'm glad that we didn't do the uh, podcast on the Friday because then we oh. just would have talked about how terrible the Red Sox were, you know, getting their heads bashed in down in Houston. But uh, you know, the, what a what a difference a weekend in, in the Bronx can make. Absolutely. Right? So anyway, Bill, uh, I appreciate the time. Um, Red Sox have a uh, have a uh, a pretty stiff homestand here with the uh, with the uh, Astros and Jays coming to town for the week, and uh, obviously they have a makeup game today with the Marlins. So we will talk about all of that stuff and more when we do this again in about a week. Thank you. Thanks, Bill.